And the talk just keeps on coming. You can do anything. You can say anything you want to say. TalkZone.com. Now, the Dr. Robbins Show, talking about your good health. Featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW, on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Larry Robbins Show. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins, joined by my co-host and my wife, Susie Robbins. I'm a physician, my wife is a social worker, and we bring you, each and every week, the cutting-edge stories and conundrums and issues of the week in medicine and health. We have a great show today with a number of interesting topics, but I think we'll start it off with one of our favorite segments, emails from our listeners. You can email us through our website if you go to headachedrugs.com. That's one long word, headachedrugs.com, or at DocLarryRobbins, D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S, at AOL.com. Our first email to Susie Robbins, our resident social worker. Susie, should a woman see a woman therapist and a man see a man therapist? How exactly do you pick a therapist? That's a good question, and I think a lot of people have wondered about that. I would say that it doesn't matter, but I'm going to qualify that by also saying that it depends on each person and what their comfort level is. I have always heard or people, therapists have said that it should not matter as long as the therapist is a really good therapist and skilled and has lots of experience helping both men and women. However, I think for some people, they themselves might have a comfort level seeing a therapist of the same gender. So that's what I'm going to say about that is, is that Typically, it doesn't matter, but I think everybody is different, and they should be able to go to whom they feel most comfortable with. How about age? How about uh, an adolescent girl, for instance? Now, adolescence is a whole different story, and I think that it's typically or usually a better idea, usually, for a young, for an adolescent girl to see a woman therapist and probably also the same for boys. Um, because somebody being in therapy, they are, uh, opening themselves up to that person. And because an adolescent is not an adult yet and hasn't had the experience, they really, you typically do better with the person of the same sex so that they don't get um, sexual imitations caught up with the therapeutic relationship. And how about picking a therapist? Would you go to the yellow pages? People are always wondering, they ask me quite often, uh, how do we find a good therapist? Well, that's a good question, too. And, you know, certainly I wouldn't say the yellow pages is the best place to go. But on the other hand, um, if somebody's in a situation where they need help desperately right away and they have to go to the yellow pages, um, then that's what they do. But I think typically starting with the family doc um, is a good way of getting uh, the names of good therapists in the area. Say it's for uh, an adolescent going to the pediatrician. Typically they have lots of experience um, 
in finding therapists for their other patients. Word of mouth, hearing from friends, someone who you know, who you trust, who has said that they or they know somebody who had been to somebody who worked out well is another good way of, of checking it out. Also, I would say that um, another possibility would be um, checking out um, mental health clinics in your area. Certainly, if you know that might be a place to start, and it might not be the place that you'd end up, but they would also, I would think, be willing to share names of professionals in the area. And I think a, a key is finding a good therapist in the top 10% of therapists. Uh, a lot of therapists, just like doctors and lawyers and accountants, are average. It's a bell-shaped curve. You certainly don't want somebody in the bottom 20% of therapists. They tend to just give a lot of advice and be abrasive and inappropriate. But uh, we need something in the top 10% of therapists, and I think that's a great idea to go to your doctors, not, not necessarily the yellow pages, uh, and also ask around. Word of mouth uh, sometimes helps. Another thing to keep in mind is, is you know, you're the consumer here. You're shopping around. Um, if you go to the first person and you just don't feel right, there's not the right connection, certainly you could give them a try. Or you could say, you know what, I think I want to uh, look around a little bit more and go have a, a an initial interview with somebody else until you feel like you found someone who just seems to connect with you. Very good. Moving on to our uh, next email that we had uh, this week. Dr. Robbins, I don't agree with your statement about vitamin C and E not being helpful. Ever since I started C&E, I feel much better. And a lot of people feel better on this supplement or that supplement, but uh, we need large studies. Uh, when one person feels better or 10 feel better from um, vitamin E, it, that's an anecdote, we call it. And the plural of anecdotes is just more anecdotes. It's not data and not studies. What we need are things like the vitamin D studies done out of the Army where they looked at 2 million people with vitamin D levels for years and years. That's the kind of study we can sink our teeth into and say, uh, it turns out that vitamin D was very helpful for a lot of things. So the plural of anecdotes is not data. Uh, if somebody feels good on a supplement, etc., I think that's fine. Uh, you take chondroitin and glucosamine for arthritis. Uh, the studies are not very positive or negative. It, it shows that those don't work much better than placebo. But I certainly have individual patients who do really well with glucosamine and chondroitin. But in general, we can't recommend things that in studies haven't shown to be better than placebo. Our next email, Dr. Larry and Susie, my son is 16 years old. And it turns out he didn't tell anybody. He's been depressed for about eight months. Uh, the pediatrician wants to try Zoloft. We do have a family history of depression. I don't want to really drug my kid. What do you think? Well, none of us wants to drug our kids, but the uh, studies and our experience shows that some conditions we can't help it and that over one and three and five years, kids do much better on certain medicines than not. You take Zoloft or Prozac and the antidepressants and depression in adolescents, assuming it's not bipolar depression, it's just regular depression, which is common. About three years ago, the FDA heard from people in Congress, heard from people who had lost their kids to suicide after going on an antidepressant, and they issued a famous black box warning on the antidepressants that really put a chilling effect on the pediatricians 
uh, prescribing the medicines. And since 2004, uh, it recently was revealed, they looked at what happened 2004 to 2006, and it turns out the antidepressant use went way down in adolescence, and suicide went way up. And it was directly correlated. Uh, The less antidepressants, the more suicide. Concurrently, we also have new studies that show that even in the first month, that was the only time that they thought there was maybe more suicidal thinking after going on an antidepressant, even in the first month, uh, the suicide rate goes down after going on an antidepressant. So I think this points out a couple things. The FDA can't give in to emotion. Yes, it's heart-rendering listening to parents in front of Congress or the FDA who've lost their child to suicide. But they now estimate that uh, because of listening to those parents who lost their children to suicide, that several thousand kids have died because of suicide who should have been on antidepressants. So we can't make public policy decisions based on emotion and anecdotes uh, and stories. We need it on data because it affects tens of thousands of people. There's a lot of examples of this, not just suicide and antidepressants. So I'll get off my soapbox here and uh, say basically the data shows that antidepressants are relatively safe, the Prozac, Zoloft, SSRI kind of antidepressants, and uh, they're probably underused. Depression is a big risk factor for Suicide, the lifetime chance of suicide with major depression is about 15% of patients. And that goes way down if they're treated with antidepressants. So, uh, you know, we have to think that versus what are the long-term side effects of giving a drug to our kids. There may be long-term consequences of the antidepressants, not serious, terrible ones. We're not finding them. But uh, the only long-term one that I think we may come up with is that it may get uh, people more dependent on taking these medicines, uh, and that's unclear. Uh, but the positive effects are are many. Susie, what's your take on this? Well, you know, I can understand both sides. I certainly can understand parents not wanting to put their kids on medicine, that they're not sure of the outcome and if it's going to change the personality or change their kid in some way. On the other hand, Many kids, just like many adults, do need medicines um, to help curb their depression. However, if a parent is really adamant about their kid not starting on a medicine, I would say at the very least allow your child to see a therapist on a regular basis so at least they can check in with somebody, uh, talk to them about what's going on in their lives, how they're feeling, and that professional can then also on a regular basis um understand where that kid is and if this if this uh teen is in some kind of um depressive what kind of depressive mode he or she's in so you know at the very least let let them see somebody also lots of exercise and an increase in exercise can actually help with the depression too i think that's great advice our last email uh is dear Susie. My sister just went into rehab for alcohol. She's 46 years old. What's the chance afterwards of her relapsing? There's definitely a chance of relapse, but I also think that the sooner she gets into rehab and starts the process of of working towards sobriety, the better off she is. Many, many people go into rehab, 
they fall off the wagon, but they get right back on, and eventually they are are sober for the rest of their lives. You know, there's a there's a show out there that maybe a lot of you have seen. It's called Intervention. It's on A and E, and it's on once a week, and it typically shows people, usually young people, who are either having substance abuse problems with drugs and or alcohol. Uh, and it shows the process for these people of going through um, an intervention with their family and friends. And it also gives you the outcome and what happened with them. Um, it's very interesting. It might actually be something that some people out there might want to watch, especially if they might have a family member or friend who's um, currently having a substance problem. Yeah, you know, that is a great show, Intervention. And it... It shows the the road to sobriety is littered with a lot of bumps in the road. Most people will unfortunately relapse, but then they'll get better. And uh, the people who are sober not necessarily have done it on the first try, but people do need help. We don't always need a program. There are people out there who've quit their drugs or alcohol without a program or just with a regular therapist, but it's relatively unusual. Our first story this week in the news was California and medical pot. It says that they advertise in newspapers and on the internet where they supply their telephone numbers and addresses and offer free samples to new customers. Finding medical marijuana vendors in California is as easy as locating a Starbucks. But fresh raids by the federal government and the DEA threatened to push the industry into the shadows 10 years after California legalized possession of marijuana. Uh, the marijuana people are saying that we're doing everything as legally as we can, but the federal government is still saying that uh, we're giving too much marijuana. Uh, this one person who operates a medical marijuana front said that uh, he has hundreds of regular customers, uh, one who's 67 years old and has been HIV positive for 17 years. And with a prescription from a doctor, they can possess up to a cup of marijuana or a little more if they need it, to relieve pain, nausea, or psychological problems. Last month, the DEA raided 10 places in L.A. that sold medical marijuana, arrested some people, and confiscated over 400 pounds of marijuana. Uh, There's also around the places that sell the marijuana more criminal activity, uh, robberies and dealings uh, that often occur around the dispensaries. Now, the medical marijuana places do screen potential patients, and they turn away quite a number of patients even before they come in the door on the phone. Uh, Susie, what do you think about uh, medical marijuana use? Well, you know, for anybody who's sitting out there who has needed it for intractable pain, it's hard, I think, for the rest of us to judge whether or not people should be able to have it. Um, I think if it's legal and it really helps with pain, absolutely. Um, it just seems that it's become, and it has been so politicized that it sometimes people tend to forget about um, that it is a medicine uh, that can help people with um, bad, bad pain. You know, I think that like everything, there's pluses and minuses. Uh, I've had a number of people, and there's been some studies on marijuana for headaches, saying that it really helps their headaches. On the other hand, particularly in young people, I'm not so eager to get young people on marijuana for headaches <clears throat> because of what it does to their lives. Motivation-wise, uh, they beca- tend to become more uh, couch potatoes if they're smoking marijuana every day. 
and uh, not going forward with our lives. But there's a lot of drugs that we use that have a lot of negatives, and we still use them because the positives outweigh it. Look at the opioids. We're using the same narcotic opioids that are morphine-based that they used hundreds of years ago. We haven't had great breakthroughs in these drugs, uh, in the delivery systems we have, but not in the drugs themselves. And they have lots of downsides, the opioids, uh, addiction, constipation, tiredness, everything, probably more downsides than marijuana. So I don't want to eliminate medical marijuana because of the downsides, but maybe if we could refine it more, look at marijuana, which is a cannabinoid, cannabinoid-based medicines, and so that people don't have to smoke it, we can refine it into a pill that works on cannabinoid receptors in the brain. Uh, there is one in Canada uh, that we talked about earlier on this program, and uh, I think that would be the better way to go than just licensing medical marijuana all over the place. Now, on to a very interesting study. Uh, there's been a movement, uh, of course, in the last 25 years to try to produce uh smarter babies than they should be uh, or than people think they're going to be uh, by either playing Beethoven, Mozart, or uh, uh, talking French to them uh, in the womb or right after the babies are born. And now there's a study, and this is very interesting. Uh, the title is, Genius Videos May Actually Hinder Baby Development. Recordings that claim to stimulate baby brain development may actually slow vocabulary development in infants if they're overused. For every hour spent watching the baby DVDs, the infants who were in the study aged 8 to 16 months uh, understood an average of 6 to 8 fewer words than babies who did not watch them. Why did babies who watched the DVDs uh, quite a bit on um, trying to develop their uh, intellect fall behind in vocabulary, and the researchers feel that they were spending less time with parents and with caregivers, and they really learn vocabulary not by these videos, but by mimicking and listening to parents talking. Uh, So it's very interesting that we can't replace parents uh, and caregivers talking with uh, these videos, and the researchers said the results surprised us, but they do make sense. There's only a fixed number of hours that young babies are awake and alert. They, they sleep a lot. If the alert time is spent in front of DVDs and TV instead of with people speaking in parentese, uh, they fall behind. And the final conclusion was that the evidence is that these DVDs are of no value and may, in fact, be harmful. And there, there seems to have been a whole cottage industry you know, you go through uh, the stores and you look online and DVDs aimed at uh, little infants, sort of as babysitters for the infants, but more to try to, uh, we're going to get our kid ahead and much smarter. There's earlier studies that I remember showing that uh, parents who pushed their kids and, and they became uh, readers, say, at age three and this and that, uh, that the kids fell back to their normal intellect IQ level by age 9 or 10, and that um, we certainly want to stimulate them and do all the normal verbal stimulation, but we can't produce geniuses. Now I'll go over to my co-host and social worker, Susie. What's your take on genius videos for little kids? Well, does it really surprise anybody out there that this is a conclusion from um, the study? Um, 
it makes sense because doesn't it seem that the most important thing a baby should be having is interaction with uh, with others, with his mother and father. Just the way parents may tend to put a toddler in front of the television, uh, in front of cartoons as a babysitter, it sounds like this is somewhat the same, putting a child in front of some kind of stimulation, but that time is time away from um, parental st- stimulation. You know, I think it also might be a little bit of competition among the parents, during the 50s and 60s, when I grew up, the parents competed with the kids' grades uh, when they were in eighth grade or high school. But now parents compete. Maybe they did then, too. My one-year-old, my two-year-old is doing this and that. My two-year-old speaks. And uh, so that maybe it's a push with parental competition a little bit. Everybody wants their kids to get ahead, but sometimes we do things that actually backfire. It's the law of unintended consequences, which comes up all the time. Don't go away. The show continues after this time out. Hello there. You've discovered TalkZone.com, the best in Internet talk radio. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. We are back, and our next story is personality and irritable bowel syndrome. People who experience high levels of stress and anxiety appear to be more likely to develop irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, following any sort of stress or infection. IBS tends to be cramping of the uh, bowel or the uh, GI system, GERD, which is uh, reflux, which is pain up in the um, above the stomach and the chest from the esophagus. So you get pain. Uh, you can have a tendency towards more acid, uh, gastritis or ulcers with irritable bowel, but it tends to be constipation and or diarrhea and often flipping between constipation and diarrhea, cramping, There's mild, moderate, or severe irritable bowel syndrome. When it's severe, it really ruins people's quality of life, particularly severe diarrhea or constipation and cramping. A variety of studies have suggested that the cause of irritable bowel syndrome has psychological and behavioral components, and this current study shows that the various psychological factors, particularly stress, anxiety, and a tendency to push oneself to keep going even when they're ill and then collapse in response do contribute to more symptoms with irritable bowel syndrome. The patients who had irritable bowel were more prone to view illness in a very pessimistic fashion, and being female was an increased risk factor. More women have irritable bowel syndrome, but certainly men do too. So the the question is, what's the interaction between something like irritable bowel syndrome uh, or even headaches and stress, anxiety? And it's complicated. Most of our serotonin is in our stomach and gut, uh, and irritable bowel syndrome is a very serotonin illness. I think it's genetic. It tends to run in families. So these illnesses like headache or irritable bowel syndrome have genetic, physical predispositions, people are more likely they more likely to run in certain families, and then maybe stresses uh, bring them on, but it's not caused by stress. If you don't inherit the uh, genetic material for headaches or irritable bowel, you probably won't get it at all, probably not. You may get something else from stress, low back pain uh, or some other symptom, but you won't get 
this. And the serotonin drugs that have been developed for irritable bowel syndrome in general have worked reasonably well. But then stress and anxiety make anything worse. So if somebody has cramping and diarrhea and they're under stress, it's going to be worse uh, under that stress. Now, outside of medicine, Susie, uh, what do you think we could do uh, behaviorally or uh, anxiety-wise for irritable bowel syndrome? Well, as we've talked in this show so often, um, therapy can certainly help with this too. Whether it's behavioral therapy where somebody's going in and just getting some, learning how to deep breathe, some exercises, uh, that could help. Regular one-on-one psychotherapy can certainly help somebody with issues and um, their whole mental outlook. I think a good point that you made that I'd like to reiterate again is that You've got to have that gene for this. Just because you are, might be uh, more tightly wound uh, doesn't mean you're going to have the irritable ball because you are a nervous person. It's kind of like having migraines. Um, it's kind of like a DNA within you. It's a very physical medical illness, all these things. Even anxiety is a very physical medical illness. You can look at certain scans of the brain and predict who has anxiety. Uh, you can tell there's uh, bigger structures like the amygdala in the brain is bigger with uh, anxiety and people with anxiety. How they use sugar in the brain is different with anxiety. And so all these illnesses that they thought were quote-unquote psychological turn out to be medical and physical with psychological components. Wouldn't it make sense then to reiterate that uh, for people who get migraines, wasn't there always a, uh, there was a common misconception that people that got migraines were warriors, but in actuality, people who get migraines, they were handed down genetically from um, from their relatives. Absolutely. Everything. If you look at uh, medicine in uh, the early 1900s and the 1800s, it's interesting how everything was uh, was attributed to psychological factors that people were either histrionic or it was because of anxiety. People were dying of shock where they had no, basically no blood going to their heart and it was thought to be psychological because before they understand, before doctors uh, and scientists understand what's going on, uh, they guess and the guesses are usually wrong is the problem. Now there's an interesting new study on breast implants linked with suicide. Uh, women who got cosmetic breast implants were nearly three times as likely to commit suicide as other women in a new study. The increased risk of suicide was not apparent until a number of years after the uh, breasts were implanted. The uh, authors believed that some women who get implants may have psychiatric problems to start with, perhaps linked with lower self-esteem or body image disorders. Women with breast implants also had a tripled risk of death from alcohol and drug use. So really, to ferret this out, they would have to look at these factors, psychological factors going in, and that would be a tough study to do, but it could be done. With breast implants, the researchers found no increased risk of death from cancer. Women with implants were more likely to die from lung cancer and respiratory diseases such as emphysema, but they were also more likely to smoke. So that explains that. Last year, Canadian scientists also found a higher risk of suicide among women who got breast implants. 
although they had lower rates of other diseases, including cancer. Last year, the uh, FDA, and we've talked about this on this show, uh, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration okayed the sale again of silicone breast implants for the first time in 14 years. They have certain advantages over the saline implants. And as an aside, many of you remember the huge uh, class action lawsuit against the makers of silicone breast implants. It was based on the premise that women who had breast implants were more likely to have immune system disorders. And you had many women in this lawsuit uh, who received money. Uh, it was a $4 billion settlement that scuttled a couple of companies, I believe. Uh, and it turned out when cooler heads prevailed after the settlement and after the lawyers and the, the uh, women got the money that the whole premise was was really a fraud, that the uh, breast implants not only did not increase the risk of immunologic disorders, in several large studies, they looked at this in Australia, in Europe, in the United States, millions of women, they looked at who had breast implants versus women who did not. These were huge studies. Women who had the breast implants had actually lower risk of immunologic disorders than women who had not gotten them. So, uh, you know, that was uh, led everybody astray, the whole legal process that was truly out of control uh, with uh, it redefined junk science. But I think that this is the chicken and the egg. Uh, here we have a study that shows that suicide may be an increased risk in women with breast implants but probably not due to the implants themselves, but more to uh, the fact that more women, uh, possibly with anxiety, depression, lower self-esteem, body image disorders, may be getting the implants to begin with. They would have to ferret that out and sort it out in a large study. Susie, your take? Well, yeah, I'm thinking about uh, that show Beverly Hills 90210, which I believe is on um, the e-entertainment network station, where they typically will show a young woman coming in who's unhappy with her body image, with her breasts, and wants to have them enhanced. My take is is that it seems more and more that it's becoming very common for people to have breast implants put in. Whether or not that's a good thing or not, I think you know it, it's not for us to judge it if it does help people to feel better about themselves. But I'm sure as time goes on, there'll be lots of interesting studies um, to update all of us on the repercussions of it. Well, I think that uh, that uh, I, I think that shows very good. People can see exactly what they're in for with plastic surgery. And as an aside, uh, it's plastic surgery is often pretty gross and bloody. It's not an easy thing. You look at a rhinoplasty or doing the nose job. What they're doing to the nose is not pretty. It's it's pretty tough to watch. But I always thought that, particularly in young women. Uh, maybe there should, should be some mandated counseling. Uh, I'm a big believer in counseling anyways. Some counseling women who want to have plastic surgery. There are certainly a number of uh, people in this country who are addicted to plastic surgery. They've had 10 or 20 uh, surgeries, and there's endless numbers of surgeries they can do now, not only breast implants and noses, but uh, cheeks and uh, chest and butt implants and calf implants and all kinds of things, and then they have them revised, and it becomes a, um, a never-ending saga. But also, some parents give their 18-year-olds breast implants for graduation presents, or uh, certainly if somebody has um, 
uh, nose. I don't want to pass judgment on what people think uh, they should redo their nose, but if somebody has a nose that doesn't look great, etc. cetera. Uh, but I think that we're headed into a whole uncharted uh, era and uncharted waters with doing plastic surgery on young people, putting in these implants uh, that may be fine for a year, but how about 10, 20, 40 years down the road? The women have to know that almost certainly they're going to have to have revisions, which means another major surgery, big-time cost, pain, possible complications. There's also complications to any surgery, and uh, certainly all plastic surgery has the usual complications. You know, I have noticed also men are getting in the act. Uh, there's actually some centers for... Uh, you see advertisement in the in the uh, magazines and newspapers, Center for Male Plastic Surgery, various types. And I think that it does tend to go towards people with relatively low self-esteem. If a man has low self-esteem and they see that they can uh, build up their calf muscles, their butt, their, their chest, their cheeks, uh, various types of plastic surgery... Uh, I don't think at the end of the day that we have studies showing that it increases people's self-esteem, although there are a lot of anecdotal stories about women receiving breast implants, etc., and their self-esteem is better, uh, just like somebody with a, uh, a horrible-looking nose who has it fixed, and they say, oh, their self-esteem is better. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't do these things, but we have to sit back and assess and really think about the impact of tens of thousands of young people getting major plastic surgeries. Susie? I agree with you. And, you know, particularly with, say, breast implants, maybe 18 for lots of people is not, uh, people have not hit maturity enough to make that decision. Maybe waiting a few more years might actually make more sense. Our next study was a bit on prepping for doctor's visits may help patients. Going into a doctor's visit armed with a checklist or even some pre-visit coaching might help patients ask the right questions. Studies have shown that people often don't get all the information they want from their doctors, so researchers have looked at a number of ways to help them ask the right questions. Coaching and prompt sheets produce similar results in helping patients ask more questions. Coaching improved patient satisfaction but resulted in the shorter consultation period. Overall, the improvements were small but significant. Bringing a family member to the appointment can also help by having a second person there not only to ask questions but to remember the doctor's answers. Now, I think particularly with uh, many older patients, they're afraid, a little reluctant to ask the doctor any questions. They come out and they haven't asked any questions and they really don't know what went on. Uh, there's a lot of stress that goes on with doctor's visits, particularly in the hospital, too. Uh, they did a study where doctors, who were now patients, they asked the doctors who were uh, functioning as patients now what their doctor had just said, and they were just as mixed up as non-doctors. So if a doctor is mixed up, uh, then uh, patients who are not doctors are particularly mixed up, and I think part of it is the stress and anxiety of the whole visit. Susie? Well, I, I think there seems to be a trend, at least um, from what I've heard, that especially with older patients, if they're going in and they need to get specific information, uh, 
they'll bring somebody with them, maybe a, a son or a daughter or a friend. But I think it can help just bringing somebody else with who can uh, listen to the information being given and that they can then talk about it afterwards. You know, I think <clears throat> there's a big difference between coming in prepared, having lists, having somebody with you, asking questions, and challenging everything that the doctor says. I just read an article uh, in a prominent newspaper health section that uh, patients should challenge what the doctor says, and it really focused on a book that's out about how to see doctors and that the doctors are often wrong with their diagnosis and you should challenge it and get second opinions. And I don't want this to become the mantra of the country. Challenge everything, get second opinions for everything, because from what I see, doctors are right uh, the vast majority of the time. You don't want to create barriers between you and your doctor. Be antagonistic and have the doctor think to themselves, uh, gosh, I want to get this person out of the office as, uh, as soon as I can. Because I think it just puts up a wall between the doctor and the patient. For instance, you know, I'm a headache specialist, and uh, I've seen 15,000 people with headaches for 23 years. So if somebody comes in and they have typical migraines, and I say to them, uh, Sally Doe, uh, I think you have migraines, and they give me the third degree, uh, which is what this book and... Um, some people want them to do, which is, why do you think I have migraines? Couldn't I have this or that? And they'll mention some condition that's one out of 10 million. And what's your evidence for me having migraines? In, in, a, in an antagonistic type of way, it really turns me off, and I think it turns off a lot of doctors. But I think that um, outside of uh, that, that preparing and writing lists and having questions asked the doctor and particularly for older patients, bringing in a friend or a family member can be incredibly valuable. Susie? You know, and I think we have to also keep in mind that a lot of people out there are going to doctors, whether it's in an HMO clinic or uh, doctors that are just extraordinarily busy all the time, and that when that patient goes in, he or she knows she may have five, six minutes tops with that doctor. So I think many people are also wanting to have their information is um, thought out prior to that because they know they don't have much time with the doc. That's a great point, and it does seem rushed. Uh, a lot of doctors are too busy, they're overbooked, and it's a major problem because the more time I spend with somebody, the better a doctor I am. The more I can get into what else is going on in their life, and we make better medicine choices as doctors the more time. If I spend 25 minutes with a person versus 12, I'm twice as good a doctor with that person. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Now more of the Dr. Robbins Show with your host, Larry Robbins, MD, on TalkZone.com. Now along the vitamin front, there were a couple new studies this week. One on zinc and colds and another on vitamin C and colds. And the bottom line of both studies was that there's no evidence that vitamin C or zinc tablets really help colds. Now, for many years, zinc has been sold, cold, uh, sold over the counter for colds, and vitamin C has been pushed for a number of things which have not panned out particularly well, uh, but for colds. And they used to say 
that um, you know if you take these things, uh, it'll uh, your cold will go away in a week, and if you don't, it'll go away in seven days. And I think that that has turned out to be true for all of our cold remedies. That it goes away when it goes away, and uh, we haven't come up with very uh, good remedies except symptomatically to dry up uh, runny noses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's been a bad year in general for vitamins. It's really buyer beware, cabad, emptor out there in vitamin and herb land. Nine out of ten herb studies and vitamin studies this year have been negative. Vitamin E has bit the dust for a number of reasons. And uh, echinacea didn't turn out to be great in the major large study that was done. And it's not surprising because the claims on these things are usually by manufacturers, by people who don't have studies. They're just saying this and that. And uh, when they're put to the test with large numbers of patients, often the claims don't hold up or they're more harmful than good. A few weeks ago on this show, we talked about multivitamins in men. There's no evidence that they do any good. Many of them are flawed with increased lead levels. But one large study showed that multivitamins in men increase the risk for severe prostate cancer. So we're, we're rethinking our use of multivitamins. And in these studies, vitamin C and zinc didn't particularly help colds. On the other hand, a new study showed that folic acid or folate was tied into depression as far as the levels of folate in the body. It was found that people with depression had lower levels of the B vitamin, folic acid or folate. Now, it's the chicken and the egg. Whether their low folate levels cause the depression is really unknown. Uh, the authors said that our study is unique in that for the first time, all the rele- relevant evidence in this area has been brought together. They looked at a number of studies, and they felt that very clearly that depression and low folic acid levels were linked. Confirming the results of a number of smaller studies, individuals with low folate levels had a 55% increased risk for depression, the investigator stated. And they went on to say that folic acid is a cheap and very commonly used food supplement, and the identification of low folate as a risk factor for depression raises the possibility of using it uh, for prevention and treatment of depression. Now, folic acid has had a checkered history in the last year or so. The earlier feeling that it counteracted something bad in the bloodstream called homocysteine and that we would get lower strokes and heart attacks didn't work out. People with high homocysteine levels who went on folic acid didn't necessarily get a lower rate of strokes and heart attacks. However, another study showed that folic acid, which I think is a very safe supplement, did tend to help improve memory at age 55 and 60, not necessarily prevent Alzheimer's, but people on it had better memory. Now we have a study showing that uh, folic acid may uh, decrease the risk for depression, and certainly in women who may become pregnant, uh, folic acid greatly decreases the risk for certain birth defects, particularly the spinal birth defects in the first trimester. So maybe we should take uh, folic acid. I take 800 micrograms, and uh, I think the ones that have held up this year are basically vitamin D and omega-3s like fish oil, and here we have folic acid. Well, it used to be that, you know, if we each took our one-a-day vitamin a day, we'd be okay. Now it seems to be getting much more specific on uh, 
what kinds of vitamins or minerals our body needs. You know, as you're talking about the folic acid, and I know in the past on the show we've talked about omega-3, it sounds like that there's some uh, qualities in each of those that help with memory. Um, is it okay to take both, and how much would you suggest? Well, I think that the studies on omega-3 fish oil for depression have been very good. They did double-blind large studies that were published in the top journals a few years ago, and new studies have shown. We don't know how much fish oil or omega-3s or eating fish is good, particularly the fatty fishes like salmon. We don't know exactly how much omega-3 fish oil capsules people should take, how many milligrams a day, but probably the more the merrier. Uh, but people often, their stomachs, or they don't want to take more than one or two capsules a day. Folic acid, uh, I usually recommend 800 micrograms a day, which is more than in a, in a multivitamin. But we have not had negative effects of folic acid. I think it's very safe. So particularly people prone possibly genetically to depression, where memory is an issue, younger women who may get pregnant certainly should be on folic acid and throughout uh, pregnancy. So that's a lot of the population that probably uh, it, it may benefit. Now, on another topic, there was a new study on MRI scans preventing as far as helping to identify and prevent breast cancer, not doing the scans preventing them, but uh, identifying early breast cancer. The MRI scans may offer a new way to detect breast cancer at its earlier stages and perhaps even prevent cancer among high-risk women This could give surgeons time to remove the lesions before they turn cancerous. The authors wrote that the MRI should thus no longer be regarded as an adjunct to mammography, but as a distinct method to detect breast cancer at its earlier stages. Now, the American Cancer Society recommends MRI screening in women uh, starting at age 30 who are at high risk. Uh, Possibly we should be doing it in In more women, women who already have had breast cancer have only a moderate risk of recurrence and are not necessarily candidates for MRI. Uh, The reason that we don't want to do MRI in everybody is uh, a couple of them. Uh, They're expensive, at least $1,000 or $1,500 per scan. Hopefully that will come down. But there's a high rate of false positives, meaning that it detects lesions that are harmless, then you lead to more uh, procedures and biopsies. Uh, sometimes doctors will think that they see something with the MRI. It's not always clear-cut, and some of these women are then choosing to have mastectomies. And um, so it, the false positive rate is a big negative. Having an MRI does not save women from undergoing the uncomfortable mammog- uh, mammography because they are different, and they're often done, the MRI and the mammograms are done uh, separately, mammography still does find things that an MRI does not. Susie? Well, it sounds like at this point, though, not anybody can go in and request to have the MRI just because they would like to have it uh, just to make sure. Is that correct, that you couldn't go in and ask your doctor to write an order for you to have that done? Well, insurances vary, and I think that if you're not at higher risk, uh, some insurance are, are are going to turn it down. You can always pay for the scan, but uh, they are expensive. And it's probably best to talk to your doctor if you're at increased risk or you're wondering about getting an MRI for breast cancer. 
and then to get it pre-approved by the insurance because you don't want to go in and then get hit with a $1,500 bill, which happens all the time, unfortunately, for a lot of things. So where MRI ends up being in the role of detecting breast cancer, we're unclear, but it is another weapon that five or eight years ago we didn't have, uh, we were just thinking about it. We kept saying, when is MRI going to be used for detecting breast cancer? And here it is. It's not perfect, but I think it does help. Now, our last study indicates that the rate of anorexia is underestimated. Their current rate of anorexia among young women seems to be substantially higher than they previously thought. Out of uh, Finland, a study of female twins showed that uh, anorexia occurs about 270 cases in 100,000 people age 15 and 19. Uh, previous uh, studies had shown that about 135 uh, kids age 15 and 19 had anorexia out of 100,000, and this is double the incidence. I think it may even be higher because many people with anorexia just never come to uh, be known the impact of the disorder is vast on all of your medical systems and psychiatrically, but a lot of young women with anorexia don't want to be treated. They don't want to see therapists or psychiatrists, and uh, nobody ever knows about it. But unfortunately, some of them go on to die, which is uh, horrible because it can be treated in most cases. Susie? Well, I think that, you know, obviously... And it can usually become obvious if someone is anorexic by just looking at them, as opposed to someone who's bulimic who typically doesn't lose the amount of weight. So in that way, I think bulimia can be is is so harmful because you could go on for years and be bulimic and nobody knows. Whereas with anorexia, at some point people really can see uh, that there's something wrong. That's a great point. When people get down to 90 pounds, 80 pounds, uh, it's obvious with the anorexia, with bulimia, where people are purging, throwing up. Their teeth and gums look horrible. Their esophagus is in bad shape from the acid, but uh, they may maintain their weight, and people don't know. A lot of bulimics uh, do keep it a secret. Well, we're out of time. This is the Dr. Larry Robbins Show. I'm here with my co-host, Susie. You can email us by going to our website, headachedrugs.com. That's one long word, headachedrugs.com. And we'll be back next week with interesting medical stories du jour. See you next week. You've been listening to The Dr. Robbins Show, featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW. Learn more about Dr. Robbins online at HeadacheDrugs.com. And join us next time for more about health and medicine right here on The Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com.